may be seated. I am really thankful to see each and every one of you here today. Every single one of you is a blessing from God. It is clear God is at work in your life because you're here. You could be a thousand other places, and so either God is in the process of drawing you to Himself, showing you who He is so that you would trust in Him, or your presence here is just an evidence of the obedience of grace, that you want to be with His people, that you want to hear His Word, and that's, that's a good gift of God's grace. So good to see you, but specifically and particularly, it is really good to see Justin Garcia here today. For those of you who don't know, uh, Justin has been in the hospital for over 30 days uh, battling COVID, and uh, we've been praying for him, and that he's here today is an uh, answer to many, many prayers. He still has a long road to go. We are grateful that he is here among us. Praise God. Well, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn to or navigate to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look in the pew rack in front of you, and there should be a, a hardback, a copy of Scripture there. You can grab one of those uh, hardback Bibles, and the passage we're going to be studying is on page 1039 in that hardback Bible. And by the way, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love for you to take that hardback copy with you today as a gift from our church. It would be our privilege to provide you a copy, your very own copy of God's Word. Well, in our study of the book of Revelation, we're looking at chapter 19 this morning. Revelation chapter 19. Do you guys want me to abandon the lapel and just go pulpit? Fine? All right. So Revelation 19 shows us a picture of the ultimate wedding. This is the wedding of all weddings. In comparison to this wedding, all other weddings, even a royal wedding, is incredibly weak. This is the wedding all other weddings in history have pointed to. There's an incredibly interesting phenomenon that's happening today in weddings that I've just recently been made aware of. You know that moment in a wedding when the wedding march is played and everyone stands to their feet and faces the back of the, uh, the room, the sanctuary, wherever it is, and everyone's gaze is directed toward the bride as the bride enters the room. Everyone is supposed to face the bride and watch her walk down the aisle in splendor. After all, that's, it's, it's her day. This is why we have gathered there to see her wedding. But what some people are doing that I find very interesting is instead of focusing on the bride in that moment, they're actually looking at the groom as he waits for and watches his bride enter the room. The expression on the groom's face as, as she enters the room and comes toward him is to many more captivating than the beauty of the bride herself. 
Well, that's kind of a picture of the mentality I think we need to have as we read Revelation 19. Yes, the bride is awesome in beauty. Yes, she is robed in splendor. But it's the groom in this passage who is truly captivating. It's the groom in this passage that we're supposed to direct our attention toward. It's the groom who's worthy of wonder and awe and worship. Because the groom is our warrior king himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so church family, as we read and study this passage, may we fix our eyes on our bridegroom and may our anticipation for his coming overflow and increase and abound. Let's read Revelation 19. And as we do so, look for the glory of our bridegroom. John says, after this, I heard what seemed, to be the, what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, and He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who would receive the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Well, Revelation chapter 19, in many ways, contains a summary of the main point of the entire book of Revelation. In Revelation 19, we see that Jesus' victory will bring unimaginable blessing for His followers and unimaginable condemnation for His enemies. Jesus' victory will bring unimaginable blessing to His followers. It will also bring unimaginable condemnation for His enemies. And so let's study this text under four ways that Jesus, as our bridegroom, loves His people. Four ways that Jesus loves His people, His bride. Four truths about our, about our groom that show us His glory and His beauty. Number one, Jesus demolishes all our other lovers. Jesus demolishes all our other lovers. So the beginning of chapter 19 continues the response of heaven to God exposing and judging the wickedness of the prostitute Babylon. We saw in chapter 17 and 18 last week that Babylon is sort of a metaphor for the sinful world system that's opposed to God. Babylon represents everything that is opposed to God. Chapter 17 and 18 showed us how alluring this world can be. Even John himself, the great apostle, marvels at Babylon's beauty and splendor. But the Lamb of God, we were told, will demolish Babylon and all who are seduced by her worldly splendor. In fact, look back at chapter 18, verse 20. After God pronounced this judgment on Babylon that she has fallen, God actually calls His heavenly saints to rejoice over the justice that God pours out on the great prostitute who captivated so many people. God calls His people to actually rejoice in the righteous judgment that He pours out. Well, in chapter 19, verses 1-5, through we see the actual rejoicing of heaven over Babylon's destruction. John hears the loud voice of a great multitude crying out, Hallelujah! Which means, praise the Lord. And all heaven shouts for joy at the fall of the world opposed to God. At the fall of the city of Babylon. 
They shout, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Notice verse 3. All of heaven cries out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then the elders and the creatures fall down and worship the one who is seated, who is seated on the throne. You see, God is to be praised. He's to be rejoiced in because of His righteous justice. God's righteous wrath and pure justice should cause us to rejoice in Him. In fact, this is a picture of what we will for all eternity do. Praise God for the smoke of His justice on all our other lovers. The smoke from all the idols of, that we have loved will be a perpetual reminder of God's perfect justice. Jesus loves His people in this way by eternally demolishing all lovers who compete with Him. One day, all of those idols, all of the things that cause us to turn away from God Almighty will be nothing but smoke rising to cause us to praise and honor and rejoice in Him. You see, idolatry is often described in the Bible as adultery or unfaithfulness against God. Whenever we trust in or marvel at something or someone other than God, we are committing adultery against our true husband. And so notice what God does. In order to help us resist the allure of all these other lovers, God promises to thoroughly judge and punish and demolish all these idols. You see, it's a whole lot easier to resist the allure of sinful world. It's a whole lot easier to resist things like materialism and pleasure, sinful pleasure, when you realize that the smoke of God's justice on them will be an everlasting reminder that God will not give His glory to another. We will rejoice in God's justice for all eternity. And so we should be rejoicing in and praising Him for His perfect justice now. Look at verse 5. Praise our God. This is in response to His judgment being poured out. This is in response to the fall of Babylon. Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great, everyone should see the justice of God and rejoice and praise Him. Rejoice in and praise Him. Here's the second truth I want you to see about Jesus in this passage. Number two, Jesus prepares us as His bride. Jesus prepares us as His bride. So in verse 6, John continues to hear the unified voice of heaven. How unified must the voice of heaven be if John is hearing this loud and clear praise from the multitude in heaven? This unified voice is loud. Notice how loud it is. John says, it's like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder. This loud, unified voice continues to thunder forth praise and adoration for God. Notice, heaven cries out, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. He is the sovereign ruler of all creation. We will never cease to praise God for His sovereignty, for His control of all things. And specifically notice in verse 7 what they rejoice in. Heaven rejoices and gives Him glory because notice, the marriage 
of the Lamb has come. This is the moment all of history has been moving toward. This is the marriage that all of creation is groaning for. And so I think this marriage of the Lamb is a metaphor for the second coming of Jesus. Jesus will fully marry His bride when He literally and physically comes again. You see, the New Testament pictures Jesus' church as His bride. The church is made up of all believers from all times, and this church, this universal church, is the bride of Jesus. And so when you put this imagery together, here's what you have. You see, when we trust in Jesus, here in this life, it is as if we are betrothed to Jesus. Now remember, betrothal in the New Testament is much, much more serious than we think about of an engagement today. An engagement today can be broke off without consequences, but a betrothal requires a divorce to break off. It is as if you are already married, even though the marriage is not yet consummated. And so, as we are betrothed to Jesus, when we trust in Him, and then the marriage will happen when He comes back, and we can enjoy our bridegroom without sin for all eternity. We are the bride of Christ, and we await our bridegroom, and we await this wedding feast when Jesus returns. This wedding and this feast is what every one of our hearts longs for. The reason we find ourselves discontent with life here and now is because this is the only thing that will satisfy us. The reason we run to everything and everyone else to try to find pleasure and satisfaction and peace is because we were made for this ultimate marriage. We were made for this feast. And notice at the end of verse 7 and end of verse 8, His bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. See, friends, this is why Jesus has not returned yet. He is granting His bride time to get herself ready. This is what is happening right here. Jesus is giving His bride time to get ready. Notice it says that the bride has made herself ready. But then it says in verse 8, it was granted her to do this. And so the bride is diligent to get herself ready, but it's only because God has graciously granted her this privilege. The bride gets herself ready, yes, but she does so with the understanding that only God can enable us to get ready. So she doesn't make herself ready unless the ability and the garments have been given to her. This is how Jesus prepares His church for this wedding of all weddings. Now again, this is a metaphor, right? We're, we're not talking about literal white and bright linen. And so notice at the end of verse 8 that we're told what these garments are. What are these garments made of that we're to be preparing ourselves, that we're to be beautifying ourselves, if you will, with? It says, the fine linen that the bride wears is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, this is so insightful. We are taught here that we are supposed to be getting ready for this wedding. This is what we are, church, to be doing. Getting ready for this wedding. The church is supposed to be characterized by preparing for the coming of our bridegroom 
And He has provided everything we need to get ready. He's provided everything we need to do these righteous deeds that would clothe us, that would make us ready for His coming. And so are we ready? Are we getting ready? Are you ready? Are you getting ready? You see, this church age between the comings of Jesus is supposed to be characterized by righteous acts, righteous works, righteous deeds that will adorn us when Jesus comes again. Listen, we don't do good works in order to earn favor with God. We can never do that on our own. Praise God, Jesus has earned all the favor with God that we need. We do good works to prepare to meet our bridegroom because He is worthy of those righteous acts. Because He's worthy of those righteous deeds. And notice the blessing that this angel speaks to John in verse 9. Remember, Revelation has seven blessings that it pronounces on those who, who are hearing and reading and applying this word. And this angel says, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited. Notice that God wanted John to write this down. Why did, why did He want John to write this blessing down? Well, because He wants us to hear this invitation. He wants us to hear the invitation to this supper. And so here's another way that Jesus prepares His bride. He is sovereignly inviting us to this feast. He is calling us out of darkness and into His light so that we might enjoy Him and His presence. Jesus invites you to the feast of all feasts. If you would turn away from your sin and trust in Him, He invites you to this feast. But you say, I don't have anything to bring. I don't have anything to contribute to the, the feast. That's okay. Because the entire feast is provided for you free of charge because of this great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But you say, I don't know what to wear or I don't have anything to wear. That's okay. Jesus will clothe you with His pure white garments of His own righteousness. He will cover you in His love. These are the true words of God, the angel says. Notice it there in verse 10. These are the true words of God. These words are true. These words aren't false or deceptive or misleading. These words are the truth. And notice John's response to these glorious things he's seeing. Now, now listen. John has seen some glorious things in the book of Revelation. He has seen some things that are amazing and indescribable. And notice his response to these glories. John says, then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that, for I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Evidently, John was so overwhelmed by all these things that he is ready to worship the messenger. Now, just a little side note here. It's little episodes like this in the Scripture that give me great confidence that this is actually God's Word, right? Because John didn't have to include this. In fact, I would have tried to hide this little episode from anyone else. John here is literally rebuked by an angel for trying to worship an angel. This isn't one of John's greatest hits. But here it is. 
in the Scripture. And I think this gives us confidence that this is indeed God's Word. Notice this mysterious saying at the end of verse 10. The angel says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I'll be honest, I'm not exactly sure what this means, but perhaps it's saying something like this. Maybe it's saying all true prophecy testifies to Jesus. Prophecy, like we're reading in the book of Revelation, has as its goal to make Jesus known. That's maybe what it's saying. Sort of my best attempt to understand what this little phrase means. It's pointing us to the centrality of Jesus. But the point of this section, verses 6 through 10, is that Jesus is preparing his bride for his coming. When he comes, it will be an unimaginably glorious feast with his bride. This is a great picture of the wedding of the Lamb. But here's the third truth about Jesus I want you to see and know in this passage. And it's this, Jesus will return in power and great glory. Jesus will return in power and great glory. So verses 11 through 16 are among the most beloved verses in the entire book of Revelation. Because here we have a description of our warrior bridegroom. Here we have a vision of the glorious and powerful return of King Jesus. Now listen, when Jesus came the first time, He came as gentle and lowly of heart. He was the suffering servant. He came as rejected by men. He veiled His deity and humbled Himself to the point of death. But when Jesus comes again, it will not be in meekness and humility. When He comes again, He will come as the King with a rod of iron, which is an allusion to Psalm 2, and He will establish His eternal kingdom and He will bring judgment on this unbelieving world. Now, before we look at the details given here about how Jesus will come, notice four names given to Jesus in this passage. Who is Jesus? Who is this bridegroom who will come? Well, notice these names that are given to Him. The first one is faithful and true. In verse 11, it says, the one sitting on the white horse is called faithful and true. This is who our Savior is. He is always faithful. He is always true because He Himself is the truth. The second name is actually unknown to us. Notice in verse 12, this name that He has written that no one knows but Himself. What? What does that even mean? To have a name that no one else knows but yourself. Isn't kind of the purpose of a name so that others know what to call you or who you are? Jesus has a name written that no one knows but Himself. Like, I'm not even sure what to do with this, but it makes me love Him more. I love this. This at least communicates the fact that we aren't told everything about Him. There's yet more glory to see and, and unveil. Eternity with Jesus, I believe, will be an endless exploration of getting to know Him. The endless exploration of getting to know Him. We'll never get to the point where it's like we have full and complete knowledge of our triune God. He is infinite. No one can control Him. No one can say, I have His name. I have Him under my foot. He is, he is sovereign. He has a name that's unknown to us. 
Notice the third name that he's called in verse 13, the Word of God. He is called the Word of God. This should remind us of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, Jesus is the clearest communication from God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the living Word of God who communicated the incommunicable to us. Who revealed what is unrevealed. Jesus is the Word of God. And then finally, the fourth name. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 16 says, Jesus has a name written on His robe and on His thigh. Was this some sort of tattoo? I don't know. He's, it's written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the Sovereign One. He is in total control. There is none above Him. And to oppose Him, as we're seeing people do in this passage, to oppose Him is the height of foolishness because He is the King of all kings. So we see four names for Jesus here, but we also see at least a dozen characteristics of Jesus coming in this passage. Let me just sort of try to condense them and summarize them into six characteristics of Jesus that are given in this passage. And I think these are specific characteristics of His coming. First notice verse 11, He is riding on a white horse. Now a white horse symbolizes victory. Riding into battle on a white horse was sort of the ultimate diss to your opponents. This white horse actually is a perfect symbol for the main point of the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. This white horse shows us that He is the victorious one. Secondly, verse 12, notice His eyes are like a flame of fire. Jesus sees and knows everything. Nothing escapes His gaze. Like you can't hide from Him. When He comes, there will be no one hiding in the caves or somewhere where no one else can see them. Jesus will see everyone clearly. There's nothing that's hidden from His eyes. Notice third, still verse 12, He has many diadems, many crowns. Not just one crown, but many crowns. Jesus has all the crowns. He has universal authority. Fourth, notice verse 13, He wears a robe dipped in blood. Now, there is a debate here about whose blood is covering this robe. Is this Jesus' blood from His death on the cross? Or is this Jesus' enemy's blood? I'm not exactly sure, but it seems to me, if I had to lean one way or the other, it seems to me that the context of judgment in the book of Revelation would suggest that this is Jesus' enemy's blood that splattered upon His robe. Fifth, verse 14, His words are like a sharp sword. With Jesus' words, He strikes down the nations that oppose Him. I love the line in Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress in Our God, that says, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, says this, The Prince of Darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. One little word shall fail Him. I love that picture 
the might of Jesus and His words like a sword that all He has to do is speak one word and His enemies fall before Him. Well, 6, notice verse 15. He rules with a rod of iron and treads the winepress of God's wrath. Jesus comes to judge. He comes to pour out His wrath on all who rebelled against Him. Like grapes in a winepress being stomped upon, so Jesus treads upon sinners in the winepress of the wrath of God. This is our bridegroom. He will not come in weakness, but in strength. He won't come again to lay down His life for sinners. He will come again to kill and punish and judge. Unlike His lowly birth in a manger, His coming will be grand and glorious and devastating for those who do not know Him. And this is one of the ways that He loves us as His people. He promises to come. This is the one of the ways that He's loved us, that He's helped prepare us for that day, is He's told us this. He's told us that He's coming back. He's told us that He will take us to be with Himself, that we will dwell with Him forever. And He's told us that He will demolish all our other lovers. Christian, this is our hope. This is where we set our eyes on the second coming of our Bridegroom. He will come in great power and great glory. And here's the fourth and final truth that I want you to see in this passage, and it's really just a summary of all that we've seen, and it's this. Jesus will defeat all His enemies. Jesus will defeat all His enemies. And so verses 17-21 through show us yet another picture of the victory of Jesus over His enemies. This is what we've been seeing again and again and again in the book of Revelation, that Jesus will be victorious This is another dreadful description of the final outpouring of God's wrath on unbelievers. And we've seen this in various metaphors, but the metaphor here in this passage is these savage birds are called, are summoned to eat the flesh of all those who do battle against God. The unbelieving kings and generals of the world gather to make war on Jesus and His people. And the result of verse 21 is that all of them are slain on the battlefield with birds gorging their flesh. Jesus fails them all with the sword of His Word and these birds come and gorge on their flesh. When Jesus comes, He will make a swift end to all of His enemies. It won't even be a battle. It won't even be a battle. He will slay them with the sword from His mouth in a moment. And notice what will happen to the beast and the false prophets that we were introduced to back in chapter 13. Remember, the dragon calls forth this beast from the sea and this beast from the land, and they do great harm to God's people and lead many people astray. Well, notice what their end will be in verse 20. And the beast was captured... And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Notice, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now we're going to see this same picture again next week when Satan himself is thrown into this lake of fire. But friends, the point is evil 
has an expiration date. Evil will not go on and on and on as it always has. Jesus will break into history and He will make all things new. Jesus has won. He is winning. And He will win. Jesus always wins. And because this victory is also our victory, this is one of the ways He loves us. By defeating all His enemies in our place. Now, let me close with a few application thoughts from this passage. Just briefly, four application thoughts from this passage. Number one, we don't have to have justice now. We don't have to demand justice now. Friends, the Lord is the avenger. He will punish all evil. In fact, Romans chapter 12 commands us as God's people to not seek vengeance because the Lord will repay. In other words, we are to patiently endure injustice in this life because we know Jesus will return and He will punish all evil. We are hearing a lot of calls for pursuing justice today. Many today are drunk on the desire to get justice at all costs. And yes, as God's people, we are called to seek justice in the right ways, like through the governing authorities He has set up as corrupt as they may be. But friends, our hope is not in getting justice now. Listen, this will help you so much, and I pray it will help me. We have never been promised justice in this life. We've never been promised justice. We are promised, in fact, that evil and unrighteousness will abound in this sinful world. And so we must never personally give someone vengeance. We must never seek to take justice in our own hands. But rather, when we are wronged, we commit ourselves, we entrust ourselves to the One who always judges justly. We don't have to have perfect justice now because Jesus will right all wrongs. And if you've heard that as don't seek justice here, don't help the weak, don't help the marginalized, then you've not heard me correctly. Because I believe as Christians we're called to that. But it's never ultimate justice here because we know it won't happen until Jesus slays all of His enemies. Here's the second application point. Friends, every day we are closer to Jesus' second coming. Every day we are closer to the second coming of Jesus. Now this is so obvious, but I wonder if we really believe it. I wonder if we really believe it. I get the sense that sometimes we just get in this rat race and we just think it's just going to go on like this forever. Friends, do you live in the here and now in light of the fact that Jesus will come? He's promised He will come, and therefore you can bet He will come. Do you long for His coming? Are you trusting in Him? Related to that third application, spend your life getting ready for Jesus' coming. Spend your life getting ready for the coming of Jesus. Friends, always be getting dressed for eternity. Always be getting dressed for this wedding. Here's how Charles Spurgeon said it. I love, I'm going to have to give you two 
Charles Spurgeon quote, so just hang on tight right here because this is going to be gold. Charles Spurgeon said, Oh, beloved, let us try every morning to get up as if that were the morning in which Christ would come. And when you go to bed at night, may we lie down with this thought. Perhaps I shall be awakened by the ringing out of the silver trumpets heralding His coming. Before the sun arises, I may be startled from my dreams by the greatest of all cries, the Lord has come, the Lord has come. Spurgeon says, what a check, what an incentive, what a spur such thoughts as these would be to us. He says, take this as a guide for your whole life. Act as if Jesus would come in the act in which you are engaged. And if you would not wish to be caught in the act at the coming of the Lord, let that not be your act. End quote. Here's a second Spurgeon quote. He said, Do not get the idea that the Lord delayeth His coming and that He will not or cannot come as yet. Far better would it be for you to stand on the tiptoe of expectation and to be rather disappointed to think that He does not come. He will come in His own time and we are always to be looking for His appearing. End quote. Think about that. We're to be getting ready for our bridegroom each day in such a way that we are disappointed each day he does not come. I love that. Spend your life getting ready for Jesus coming. Well, the fourth and final application is turn away from all other lovers. Turn away right now from all other lovers. As First John Puts it, little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from all other lovers. Why? Because they will be judged. Because they will face the wrath of the Lamb. That's why we should turn away from them. But be faithful to your bridegroom because Jesus demands and deserves your complete, your total allegiance. Let's commit ourselves to Him now. Lord Jesus, come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, Lord, we long for You to split the skies. We long for You to come and to take Your bride to Yourself and for You to judge all Your enemies. O righteous and true God, we praise You for Your justice. And we thank You that Your justice has fallen on Jesus in our place. We deserve Your righteous wrath. And so we thank You that Jesus in our place took our sins, took our punishment so that we can be married to Him. So that we can know this feast, so that we can enjoy this feast, this marriage for all eternity. Come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's stand.